right. This is the last reading of the, the three this morning. And Genesis 11, verses 27 through 32. I read it multiple times to myself the other day because I was really confused with the names. So here's a little tip. Haran is both a person and a place. Okay? So here you go. Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we get to head back into our Genesis series that we began, if you believe it or not, last year about this time we started it. Uh, we did Genesis Beginnings. We called it chapters 1 through 11. Uh, and now, though, we get to transition, and I'm really excited. I have loved the book of Genesis. We go now into our uh, series, Genesis, the life of Abraham, the father of faith, we're calling it. Have you been looking forward to getting back to it? Maybe have you thought about it. Somebody's, oh, I heard, I heard one yes out there. Good. I can't believe that was a year ago. I mean, you're thinking, wow, that was that's a while ago that we started. We did some, after Genesis Beginnings, we've done some other books, the Bible in between, and we're taking it kind of in five chunks, five different stories. And think about how much has happened since last year. We went through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, how different life looks right now than it did uh, September a year ago. So different. Since you were like me, you probably don't remember a ton of those messages of what we talked about. Um, so this morning is going to be a great exercise, I think, for us just to take a morning to revisit our Genesis Foundation series, chapters 1 through 11, as we transition into uh, the life of Abraham with a 10,000 foot view, really, uh, as we look at some of the big themes from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I see some of you out there that are getting moved into the sun as the shade moves. Feel free during the service today if you want to move into the sun or into the shade. I, I, there's no problem with that. Get up, move. Not, it's not going to cause any issues. We want you to be comfortable. So if you need to move, please go ahead. Well, we're doing the big themes, I said. You remember, we called this uh, portion of Genesis, we called it primeval history. What in the world is that? Primeval history. It really just means the earliest history of our planet. Before we get to the life of Abraham in chapter 12. Chapters 1 through 11 were this grand, sweeping overview of God's sovereign working to create a world and create a people for his glory and his name. From creation to the first humans, to the early family lines, to Adam, to Seth, to Noah, down to Noah's son, Shem. 
Remember, it was creation, fall, flood, rebellion, murder, pride, and yet grace and mercy in chapters 1 through 11. We looked at the beginning of all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything begins here. Everything. All things, all existence, nothing except God is present before this verse and moment in history. Nothing. The scriptures, both Old Testament and New, if you remember, affirm that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. Exodus 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Scripture in Exodus records that Moses was told by God, write this down. And Jesus himself, do you know that in the New Testament, he affirmed the same thing, that Moses was the author. He said this, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father in John 5. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know that Jesus attests to the fact that Moses wrote Exodus and Genesis and the first five books of the Bible. So the book of Genesis was probably written quickly as we go a little recap. Sometime around 1500s BC, when God's people were wandering the desert after the Exodus, probably written for them just as they were at a desperate enough point where they needed to be reminded of their story their origins, their beginnings, and their sovereign God. God has Moses write it down. It's a world-altering story. It's a radical story coming into a pantheistic world where the Egyptians, the, the Babylonians, believed in a, a, really a pantheon of gods who were needy gods and self-centered and capricious, just uh, wishy-washy. Into that world comes the exclusive God of the Bible, gracious loving, creator of all, Yahweh, into that pantheistic world, like nothing they'd ever heard before. So this morning I want to look at five large themes. We're going to go over them quick. Uh, five large themes of chapters 1 through 11, as we'll revisit some of the stories together as well. So you've got an outline. Hopefully you got it. We've got a couple charts on there today too. It would be a great day to have visuals, but we don't. That's okay. We're outside. We get the beautiful sun. Let's look those. You've got your outline and scripture open. So the first big theme today. It's the big theme of God's speech in Genesis 1 through 11. The big theme of God's speech. We get to look behind the curtain of history in Genesis 1 through 11. And when we do, what do we find there? We find an eternal triune God, three persons in one, we, we describe it, who's eternally existed by himself in perfect fellowship. The first church small group, right there. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally happy. Not needing anything or anyone, self-existent we call him, sufficient in himself, and yet he chooses to speak. He didn't need anything. He wasn't bored for conversation. He chooses to speak and create using his speech. Another way to say this point would be, God is the sovereign creator of all there is. The big theme of God's speech. He creates by his word. And then not only does he create 
in Genesis, he chooses to reveal himself to us by speaking to his first human beings. Do you remember the story, the state of Adam and Eve in the garden that we went through? Here's a couple verses to listen. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful. He said to them, there it is, speech. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is after their sin. In the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, remember what they did? We talked about it a lot. There was their instinct after sinning. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Genesis 1 tells us God spoke to this man and woman who were made in his image because they were the crown of his creation and they were given great meaning and purpose and a mission through God's speech like we are today. Jesus gave us the great commission. Go and make disciples. He's, he's still speaking. And to cultivate that, he said Adam and Eve, and care for the earth, to take the stuff of the earth and make something of it. That's what cultivate is. That's what the word culture means, really. It's like farming, gardening, taking the stuff of the earth and making something of it. That's our job. And all the while, Genesis 3, the verse I just read, says that God would walk with them in the garden. He'd walk with them. And we, we understand that because it, it implies when the negative hiding of Adam and Eve when God is walking in the garden, that they probably used to walk with him. Now they're hiding. We see that God's intent from the beginning of time was to have a speech-driven, creative relationship with the first man and woman and walk with them in the garden in relationship, but it's lost, you remember. As the covenant that was read by Alice that was made between God and his people they broke it they broke it and chose to defy him and look to be God for the, themselves the rest of the Bible is God speaking and working then after Genesis 3 the rest of the Bible is God speaking and working to restore the garden city that we lost the garden we lost here's what it looks like I had a nice uh, uh, slide for us but it's it starts in a garden. He tells him to build a garden city there. His presence is there. Moves on in Exodus to the tabernacle, then to the temple in Jerusalem. And now in the church, he's here present among us. And someday, do you know where we're going? We're going back to a garden city. We started there. We lost it. And all through Genesis and the Bible uh, into Exodus, God is with his people. Garden, tabernacle, temple, Jerusalem, the church, now us, and someday that new garden city coming back to us. And he works it all through his speech and saving of humanity. That's our first big theme. And so ask yourself this question. Who gets to be the primary voice to speak into your life? What voice or channel Website, blogger, social media platform, or newscaster, or publication gets the primary place of speaking into your life. Is it God and his word where we know he has spoken? Because the primary voice in your life is the one that is primarily going to shape you and mold you and form you. It's inevitable. We're malleable creatures as humans. 
Our hearts are molded and shaped by what we take in. This is huge right now. This is really huge right now for churches. And actually, COVID has sped this up. When the church's mission is to form Christians with God's voice, that's our, that's our mission. See disciples come in and then be formulated, formed, molded, malleable, shaped into Christ-like people. I can't tell you how daunting it is for the church right now, and I even say pastors, when so many other voices, in particular, online voices, get way more time with the people of God than their pastors do, in many places, in many lives, and influence over their people. It's really a, it's really a challenge. It's something I think about a lot. You know, the search bar... As I read in an article this week, the author said, the search bar has become spiritual battleground zero for hearts and lives. Will God's voice in Genesis as we go through this series get the primacy in your life, in your heart, and how will you be different from listening and following it? I put an article out on the table this morning, just about 20 of them. Um, Are churches losing the battle to form Christians? not sure about your own life and you feel like you know I got a lot of competing voices for my heart I encourage you grab this article and check it out today we got some resources again out today for you I was really challenged by it our first theme of God's speech here's our second the big theme of God's covenants number two there the big theme in Genesis of God's covenants this is truly important really important in the Bible this idea of covenant From Genesis onward, God is making oaths to his people. That's what covenants are. They're legal binding agreements, partnerships between two parties. They're they're, they're God's oaths with his people, with promises and conditions and warnings to his people. And from Adam to Noah to Abraham, these covenants become like uh, the support structure, or you know the rebar in a building so that it can be solid and, and, and built upon. These covenants become like that the, the, the faithful uh, structure on with which we live and, and are built and act on. For the community of God's people to be built upon these covenants. The covenants explain the parameters in which you and I are to live in relationship with God. Take a look. I've got a couple charts in your uh, outline today. I want to look at the first one there. I want us just to see. I'm not going to go into this real in depth today, but you see it on the side of your worship folder. It is that it is important. So I want you to have a little resource to keep in your notes or keep at home. When we go to the Bible and we talk covenants, there's really three primary ways to describe these covenants. And as you take a look there, the chart kind of gives the covenant and then kind of the details underneath of each one. Really three. Covenant of redemption is the first one that's talked about a lot in the Gospel of John where the Father, person, Son, and Spirit promise to provide salvation for humanity. And it's taken place in eternity past this agreement, covenant, idea, plan to rescue humanity. Father chooses to rescue and the Son goes and does it and then the Holy Spirit applies it to the church. Covenant of redemption. The covenant of works. That's what we heard read today between Adam 
with Adam. There's the persons. What was the promise for Adam and Eve? To keep, if they kept the covenant, physical and eternal life. What was the condition? Obedience. What was the warning? Death would come. And when was this time in history? It was Eden before the fall. Everything after that. Everything. From Genesis 3.15 on, we're going to look in a minute, is a covenant of grace with humanity. What's the promise? Eternal life. What's the condition? Faith alone. What's the warning? Eternal death. And what's the time for this one? I say everything from Eden after the fall is grace. And everything really from Eden on could be explained under a covenant with God's people of grace. And really the covenant of grace unfolds. It's like a, a big roll of carpet that we're laying down in that building. You take it, you put it down, you roll it and it unfolds. The covenant of grace is like that unfolding. It's better than carpet, but that's a visual picture for you. It's first promised in Genesis 3.15. We're going to look at it in a minute. And it's expanded over time through these other covenants to God's people. Take a look at those. It's the second chart there. Uh, we get the covenant of works we've got with Adam and Eve there. We've got that line, the fall. And from there on, we see God's expanding covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15. We heard the, uh, he, the Noahic covenant this morning. We heard that. On to Abraham, on to Moses, and David, and the new covenant. God makes promises to his people throughout history, and our response is faith, which plays out in active obedience. I said it began in the garden, the faithful promise of God. We call it the proto-euangelion. It just means the first gospel. It's a confusing word that just really simply means the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, do you know it? It should be highlighted in your Bible. That should be a verse that's like, it's the first promise of the gospel. I will put enmity between you, he's saying to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring, he, whoever this he is, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And then it continued to Noah, when God covenanted it not to destroy all life by the flood again, assuring that he'll sustain earth until all the redeemed, all the elect children of God are brought into the kingdom. It gives us an assurance, a predictability that we can live not worrying that the whole world is going to be destroyed tomorrow by flood. Then the covenant of grace unfolds through Abraham, which we'll talk about next week, then through Moses, then through David, which culminates in the new covenant in Christ. After the fall, God gives us this new Arrangement. What's he doing? What's he doing through these covenants? Why do they matter? God is preparing all along for the sending of Jesus the Messiah through a progressive, redemptive, unfolding history. Uh, Dr. Keith Matheson said, All these covenants were part of God's redemptive plan under the one covenant of grace, the one overarching plan of salvation by grace alone through the work of Christ alone. He went on to say, the emphasis here is the Protestant insistent on the fact that after the fall, the only way for sinful man to be saved is by faith alone. 
in Christ alone. Or in the promises of God up to that point in history that they knew. So you might say, well, I mean, isn't this covenant, it's just kind of like old theology. Why does it matter that Genesis talks about this? Why does it matter that we're taking five minutes out of this sermon to go through these covenants? Why does it matter? Because these covenants for you and I are infinite comfort and assurance. And to know the God of these covenants, to know that he has purposed from history past, eternity past, to save a people. That's why they matter. And that he seeks out people. He initiates with people to make covenants with them. And he sets the terms. And then assures that they'll be carried out and fulfilled. What could be more assuring than to know if, if you're trusting Christ today, with all the upheaval in this world today, it's not just some whim of faith that you happen to believe. No, the covenant-making God has sought you out. As Brendan said last week, he said, God has come upon me, he said at his baptism. He's come upon me. He's assured you of his commitment to saving you in the covenants. That's why they matter. And he absolutely puts himself on the line, on the hook for you with these covenants. You're secure. So what? So you can trust him. He's made covenants. When you're unfaithful, guess what? He's faithful. When you have seasons of doubt, guess what? He doesn't. When you're doubting your salvation, guess what? He isn't. Because Jesus came, and you know what he did? He fulfilled every one of these covenants, including Adam's covenant of works, where Adam failed. Jesus passed the test. They matter. It's big theology, yes, but man, it comes down to the little places where the rubber meets the road in your life. You can trust him because he's a God of covenants. It's our second big promise of Genesis. Here's our third one. Let's look at it. The foundational battle, the big battle of serpent and seed. The big battle of serpent and seed. Anna had the tough task of reading the genealogy this morning, but a few of you had some, remember back to Genesis 1 through 11, there were some tough scripture readings. Some of those names, and you guys did an awesome job at looking them up. Some of you guys did and trying to figure them out. Like, why are we reading these names? Why would we spend three or four minutes in worship service reading through a genealogy? You remember those strange genealogies? Remember as well, we followed a couple different family lines. We had Cain and Abel, remember? But then Cain kills Abel, and he went on in Genesis to build a city. He named it not after God, he named it after his son Enoch. And Cain's line went on and culminated in this really prize of a man named Lamech. Not really. Uh, we read, remember, the treacherous Lamech. Here was just a couple lines. Remember from Genesis 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, which really means a boy. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Not the kind of guy you want to bring home to meet mom. <laughs> Not a great man. But that's where Cain's line culminated in Genesis for us. 
And to wrap up our series, we read of that ultimate rebellion that seemed to come through Cain's line, the rebellion of God's people at the prideful Tower of Babel. What a fascinating story that was in Genesis chapter 11. A line we looked at, but there was two, wasn't there? There's another family line we looked at. Adam and Eve had another son after Cain and Abel, didn't they? And thank the Lord. Eve knew it as she named him. His name was, do you remember? Seth. Seth. When Eve names Seth, it's like she's saying, God has appointed a new seed. His name really means a new beginning or foundation. And Seth's line was traced to Noah, and from him to Shem, to Abraham. Why does this matter so much? Why are the genealogies there? Remember back to Genesis 3.15 again. I said, highlight that one. That's important. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. God promised that someone would come from the seed, that means the seed, the line, the birth, the progeny, from the offspring of this woman Eve. And later we know it's through Abraham's family who would crush the serpent. It's a promise God made to his people. The serpent would wound his head as he did it. He'd be a wounded victor. So is there any surprise then when we get to the New Testament and the promised one comes from this line of this line and lineage, is it any surprise when we get to the New Testament that the demons rage when Jesus walks the earth? It shouldn't surprise us. The promised one from Genesis 3.15 had finally come. Of course they're going to rage. And we marvel that the seed has come when we realize the foundational cosmic battle that this verse lays out for us that begins back here in Genesis. You see, we read the stories of the Bible and we read them for what they are, which we should, stories about people's lives and their interactions with God and that's right and good, but behind the stories, behind the stories, there's a larger story. A cosmic battle, Genesis 3.15 says, between the seed of the woman and the rest of humanity and, and the evil spiritual forces. And once God made this covenant with this family line of Eve, he puts himself again, we say, on the hook to protect this seed in this family line. What happens if this family ceases to exist? Where's the promised one? Do you ever wonder why this wandering desert people named the Israelites are always being attacked. They're nothing special. They're nothing great. Especially when they're out wandering the desert. Why are they always being attacked? We look at the stories, well, nations rage, nations have war. They, oh, yes, true. What was behind that, though? The battle of the serpent and the sea. That's why they're always attacked. Why do you think we're always under spiritual attack as, as God's people, as children? Satan's plan, hey, attack the people group, attack the seed. Destroy the people group, destroy the seed, no Messiah. As if that could ever happen, right? <laughs> when we have a covenant-keeping God. So as I said, it's no surprise the demons rage when we get to the New Testament. The promised one has arrived. The bigger storyline of the Bible, the cosmic battle of serpent and seed. And now we get to be part of that. You get to be part of that. Because we're the same family line. You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. 
I'm one of them, and so are you, right? You remember that song if you grew up in the church? We are part of that line now. Children of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. We now represent the serpent crusher. Do you hear that? We now represent the serpent crusher. He's brought us into that cosmic battle. So let us not forget. Why does this matter? Let us not forget we fight a real spiritual battle. We have real spiritual enemies. And our call is to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he's a covenant-keeping God? I hope so. Because Jesus has already won the victory. Let's go to our fourth big theme. The foundational history and human condition. We'll wrap these up pretty quick here. Foundational history, or the big story of history, and the human condition. Genesis looks at the foundational, really, history that's unpacked and develops in the rest of the Bible. I like to describe these stories in Genesis. They're like little acorns, or a little seed that you plant. And you plant this little acorn, and over time, what does it become? This giant, towering uh, uh, oak tree, uh, strong. These little acorns. Genesis is like that. These little stories that Old Testament become the full oak blooming in the New Testament. And the history we see here in Genesis is displaying for us the universal human condition that everyone has. The challenge and problem that everyone has. We are sinners in need of great help from God. That's what we get. In Genesis, we see it really clear. We're going to see some shocking things in Genesis. Really shocking. Greed, murder, deception, abuse, war, oppression, lying, you name it. Humanity constantly rebels against God and his rule and his word. It's what we do. And the result we're going to see time and time again is disintegration, destruction, alienation of people and groups and families and relationships and lives. The devastation is radical. And we'll see a cycle in all five of these stories of how God deals with it. Sin, God's speech and penalty, grace from God in all these stories, and some discipline or punishment as well. And when we look at God dealing with these people and our universal sinful condition, you know what we're going to see in Genesis? It's a sub-point under number four. Grace and faith. Grace and faith. Time and time again, we're going to see it. Genesis is about grace. And I think it's surprisingly, as we continue into Abraham, going to be, be so. About grace. All five stories we will see. While sin is increasing, and God's punishment is severe, God's grace is enough. That's what we're going to see in Genesis. Kent Hughes said about it, Adam and Eve are punished, but God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark of protection. The flood comes, but God graciously preserves the human race through Noah. God of grace. And we're going to have this grace transform us as God's people and fill our lives. Why? Because we will see our just like them and have the same big problem and need. Their story is our story. The patriarchs all failed miserably. We're going to look at this and you're going to go, these are the heroes of our faith? <laughs> these are the heroes, these men and women? 
You know what, actually? The point actually is, is that God is the hero. Not the people in the story. God is the hero of Genesis. And he's always been as he saves his people by grace through faith. Even the best of the early followers of God couldn't merit salvation. Here's the question. How were Old Testament saints saved? How were they saved? You might be tempted to say, well, the law, right? No. What does Genesis 15 say that we're going to see? And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, like any everyone else who's ever been saved by God, was justified through faith. From Genesis 3.15 on, Genesis is going to show us this foundational history and human condition. Let's wrap with five. The big theme is this. It's kind of back to number one again. God is the beginning. God is the beginning. You see, because Genesis in the Bible ultimately isn't about, ultimately now, ultimately isn't about you and me. Or even the characters necessarily. It's about God. And that's what we're going to make Genesis about. Even as we look at the life of Abraham and his real struggles and his real victories and his triumph through faith. It's always about God. In the beginning, God. If you were here last Sunday for our baptism service, um, one of our young guys, he's here today too, Jacob was baptized. He doesn't know if I mentioned this again, but he already said it, so he won't mind if I say it again. I asked him, what was his favorite verse? Do you remember that, Jacob? I said, what's your favorite verse, Jacob? If you were here last Sunday, or maybe you were watching it online. And he said, Genesis 1-1. And I'm sure at that moment some of us thought, Maybe he couldn't think of one. He said Genesis 1.1. Oh, that's a cute, that's an easy one, maybe you thought. And Jacob almost knew we were thinking that. Did you catch that? He almost knew we were thinking that because he said, do you remember what he said to us? Here's what he said. Jacob, I went back and watched the video and quoted you. He said, I know it's the first verse of the Bible. He almost was like, I get it if when I say that. You're, I know it's the first verse of the Bible. But he made the world, he said. He said, but to me, that's the most important verse, he said, because... We're living right now because it's what he made. That's what Jacob said. And even as God's people, we forget this vital truth. You and I are not self-existent. And Genesis shows us that. You woke this morning because God granted you another day. You go on at his permission. His breath is in your lungs. Everything comes from him. He created the heavens and the earth. And I love how Jacob pointed us to that, pointed us to that last week. My favorite verse, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That's it. That's everything. And that's what we're going to continue to see in the life of Abraham. Genesis is about God from the first to the last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so looking forward to getting back into this book as we recap it and bring ourselves now up to the life of Abraham, the man of faith. Guide and direct us as we study. Lead us into these big themes again and even more as there's much more we'll look at into, into really uh, December in the life of Abraham. Bless our congregation. Bless our life together and let us not, let us only be changed. Let us not be different on the backside of Genesis. Let us be transformed and changed by what we hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.